Well, good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to see uh, how our Lord, the Holy One, sends Isaiah out to serve him in a very special way. And uh, I think there's some application for us here as well this morning. Isaiah chapter 6. And let's speak to the author of this text, shall we? Let's pray together. Father, as I think of what's in this particular text and how you reveal your greatness, your holiness, and yes, your grace to us, I feel as though I want to take off my shoes and worship you because uh, we are standing on holy ground. We know you're present, Lord. Before the first one walked in this morning, you were already in this auditorium, this sanctuary. And so we welcome you, Lord, to stir us this morning, and we know that you welcome us as we have arrived here to worship you. Give us freedom to express your worth. Give us freedom, Lord, to confess whatever it is that might be blocking our relationship with you. And then, Lord, give us freedom to embrace the call as you send us out by your spirit, by your grace, to make a difference in this extremely needy world. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your mercy. And we thank you for your word. Give us a teachable spirit just now, and I pray that what occurs this morning would spill over into the weeks ahead and be a blessing to many people and great honor to you. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. And Lord, all of your people said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, this is from uh, Voice of the Martyrs, also known as VOM. Uh, it's not a martyr story per se, but I found it interesting. This is very recent, April 2015. It says this, and I hope I get pronunciations right. This occurs, and it's a true story from Iraq. Isan had been friends with VOM partner Azhar for years. Azhar had gently tried to share Christ with his friend many times, but Isan wasn't interested. And then in June 2014, jihadists from the Islamic State, IS, or we would say ISIS or ISIL, whatever they go by, overran Mosul, Iraq, in their campaign to establish a caliphate. About 100,000 Christians, as well as many Muslims and Yazidis, fled in fear. Ashar and the VOM team worked tirelessly to meet the needs of refugees flooding into Erbil, as VOM readers provided funds for action packs, a team packed them with food, clothing, hygiene items, and a Bible before distributing them to as many people as they could. Isan watched Ashar and the VOM team serve the refugees for two months. And then one day... In early November, Azhar invited Isan to help him prepare some action packs for a distribution. The team spent nine hours sorting and packing bags, not even breaking for lunch. When they finally finished that evening, Azhar invited Isan to join him for dinner. I saw something had changed, said Azhar. Isan wasn't hungry, but he did have lots of questions. You spent all that time sharing the gospel with me, Isan said. Now I'm ready to receive a Bible. And so Asar gave Isan a Bible 
and suggested that he start reading in Matthew. Well, the next morning, Isan called. My friend, he said, I've been up the whole night. Jesus revealed himself to me. Now, apparently, Isan had an encounter with the Holy One as he read the scriptures. I want to take the final step. I want to be baptized, and I want to get involved in ministry like you. Asar spent the next few weeks teaching Isan, and Isan began to attend a small house church in Erbil. Though Isan has a full-time office job, he joins the team whenever possible to distribute Bibles and action packs. He prays with those receiving the packs, and when given the opportunity, tells them about Jesus. Isan was baptized in December. Well, the fruit of Isan's new faith is already evident to those who are around him. In December, one of his co-workers approached Asar. What's different about Isan, he asked. There's a change, a new piece there. I'll tell you the reason, Asar replied. He knows Jesus now. You see, Isan learned firsthand that encountering the Holy One is life-changing. When you meet him, there's something that occurs. There's a spiritual transaction that takes place. And this is not just for first-time believers, but for those of us who know the Lord, from time to time, we need, for lack of a better word, a spiritual breakthrough in our lives. And that's apparently what happened to this man. For him, it's coming to faith for the first time. Have you ever encountered the Holy One? Now, I'm not necessarily referring to some sort of mystical experience or a vision, as we're going to see here in a moment in Isaiah 6. This is something unique that happened to Isaiah. I'm not going to say it'll never happen to you, but this is something in context that's unique to him as he approaches the temple. We'll talk about some of the context. But my question is, have you ever encountered the Holy One through his written revelation and through prayer in such a way that he is real to you? And it's not a case of knowing about him or knowing of him, but rather you know him personally, experientially, as he impacts your life, maybe in an inexplicable way. Well, this is what happens to Isaiah. Something radical occurs in his life, and as a result, his life has been changed. And this is the question that we need to ask if we have some sort of an experience Is there some life change that we can point to, that others who know us can point to to say, wow, I don't know what's happened to you, but something awesome has happened to you? And so the reason I'm asking these questions, we're going to see very clearly in this particular text, this awesome text, that encountering the Holy One is life-changing. Encountering the Holy One is life-changing. But how? In what ways is it life-changing? Well, thanks for asking that question. That's a great question. It gives me a platform. Now I can preach. I invite you to join me as we consider three ways in which encountering the Holy One is life-changing, radically life-changing in some cases. And the first way is simply this. While encountering the Holy One, we become burdened over sin. While encountering the Holy One we become burdened over sin. I invite you to look at the text with me, Isaiah chapter 6, if you're not there. Chapter 6 and verse 1. Isaiah says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, 
I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, in Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, Isaiah offers a thematic overview of the entire book. He puts it there strategically for a reason. There are certain themes he wants to present in a very general way. And chapter 6 serves as the conclusion of chapters 1 through 5. But it also serves as the introduction to chapters 7 through 12. But my point here that I want you to write down is that chronologically... Chapter 6, in my view anyway, and I could be wrong, I'm only a man. But in my view, I think chapter 6 precedes everything. This is the inaugural moment here of Isaiah's ministry in Isaiah chapter 6. So this is his encounter with the Lord that I think is going to impact uh, the rest of his ministry, the rest of his life, in fact. And hopefully I'll bear that out as we go through. So notice the time marker there. In the year of King Uzziah's death, King Uzziah reigned over Judah for... 52 years. He was a great king in the sense that he restored Israel's military power. He expanded her borders. He died in the year 740. And it was a sad occasion. Can you imagine having, let's say, a president for 52 years? I realize that could be good or bad. But the point is, uh, you can become attached to somebody. For some, it would be their whole life, the same leader, right? And so this man died. Uh, He was either dying, we're not sure exactly. Meaning, at the time of this occurrence in Isaiah 6, he was either dying or he had already died. But this at least occurred within the year that he died. We know that much for sure. So this was a time of political uncertainty. Assyria was in the east, flexing its muscles. Uh, The nation was worried about a number of things. And Isaiah goes into the temple to worship. And he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And the word there, Lord, is the word Adonai. Adonai speaks of the sovereignty of God. So Isaiah goes into the throne. As I say, the nation's a little bit worried about some things. And here he sees the one who is in control of literally everything. So in a time of great uncertainty, he sees the king of kings sitting on his throne. Now, that act of sitting suggests that he manifested himself in human form. And so, who in particular did Isaiah see sitting on the throne? Did he see the Father? Did he see the Holy Spirit? Did he see the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus? Well, notice how he's described. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Look at the two words there. In my translation, it says lofty and exalted. Now, those two words occur in the Hebrew over in Isaiah, if you want it for your notes, Isaiah 52, verse 13. Same two words there, and there it describes the Messiah, Jesus. I'll read it for you. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant, Messiah Jesus, will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Same concept there. Now, keep your place in Isaiah 6. Let's go to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John. In particular, I'd like you to turn to John 12. And I think this sheds a lot of light on what Isaiah was experiencing and more particularly who he was seeing in this vision that he had. Isaiah 12, I'd like you to look with me, please, at verse 39. And then we'll go down to verse 41. So this is uh, John chapter 12, verse 39 through 41. 
It says, For this cause they could not believe. Notice they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he, Isaiah, saw his glory, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him, i.e., spoke of Jesus. So in John's mind, he thinks that Isaiah saw Jesus sitting on the throne. Now you can turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. So after quoting from Isaiah 6, John says that Isaiah saw Christ's glory and he spoke of him. So King Uzziah is either dying or dead, and yet the king of kings, Jesus Christ, is still living and reigning and always will, right? He's alive and well. And so notice it says back in uh, verse 1, the train of his robe was filling the temple. The sweeping length of Christ's robe speaks of his majestic stature as king of kings. And by contrast, Isaiah realizes how small he really is in the presence of this awesome God. And so in verse 2, notice what happens. Seraphim, angelic beings of some sort, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, seraphims in the plural, uh, the word means fiery ones. These were uh, moral beings in close proximity to the brilliant countenance of the Holy One himself. They're there hovering around him, if you will. Now, it says they're above him, but he's sitting, of course, and they're hovering near him, ready and eager to serve. And notice how it describes them. Each having six wings, with two he covered his face. Now, why would they do such a thing? You think they would want to see God, right? Wouldn't they want to glimpse at the Holy One? Well, Exodus thirty-three twenty says, God speaking, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. And then remember the scene in uh, Matthew 17, and Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, as he, in some sense, pulled back his flesh and revealed some of his glory. So the idea here is even these holy ones, these brilliant ones, these flaming ones, these seraphim who had no sin, could not even gaze on the essence of the holy one, the essence of God. And then it says, uh, look at the next part of the verse there, verse 2. It says, with two wings he covered his feet. I believe they did this with great humility and with deepest reverence for the Holy One. And so, how do they respond in the presence of this awesome God? Well, we were just worshiping, right? And I think we're still worshiping now as we hear the Word of God and apply it to our lives. And that's what they do. If you look at verse 3. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, there were likely two groups. We don't know for sure. But it seems like they're offering up praise antiphonally, taking turns, one and then the other, giving praise to God. This is their occupation. We will be occupied doing such a thing uh, when we're in his presence and glory. So look at the phrase there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of of hosts. It's repeated thrice for emphasis. This is the one who is holier than any other being. 
This is the one who is unique in his ethical purity. Now there, the word the Lord does not mean Adonai, the sovereign one, but rather it refers to Yahweh, which is the personal character of God. And so this is his essential nature. His essential nature is holy through and through. He's set apart and unlike any other thing or any other human, including this man, Isaiah. He's fully aware of it, by the way. The impact is having its effect in Isaiah's heart and in his mind. It has a profound impact upon him. In fact, think about this for a moment. How many books are in the Bible? Come on now, 66, right? Okay, let's take Isaiah out of the way for a moment. That leaves 65 books, right? So if you were to search those 65 books for this particular phrase, the Holy One of Israel, if you had your electronic concordance here and searched it out, you'd find in those 65 books, only six, count them, Sesame Street, six occurrences of the Holy One. The Holy One of Israel occurs six times in the rest of the Bible. But in Isaiah itself, just that one book, that same phrase, the Holy One of Israel, occurs 26 times. He's got a monopoly on the phrase. Why? Because this had so impacted him for the rest of his life. Do you ever get when somebody takes a photo of you and that that flash that hits your eyes, then you see like purple spots for quite a while, like and you're blinking like it's not going away yet, and everybody looks purple? That's how it was for Isaiah, except it never went away. He was so impressed with the holiness of God, and he keeps referring to him as the Holy One, and that stays with him throughout his ministry. And by the way, he had a tough ministry. Not too much response overall. Notice verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with Smoke. So the praise of the seraphim was powerful enough to rock the foundation stones which supported the doorposts. And likely, Isaiah was right there lying prostrate uh, at the doorway of the temple because the temple was filled with the robe of God. It was filled with smoke, that smoke originating from the altar of incense, which was attended to by these uh, creatures, these seraphim. Verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me! For I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Painfully aware of his desperately sinful state before the Holy One, Isaiah felt doomed to die. The contrast couldn't be any greater between his sin and the holiness of this God who he's looking at here. And so while encountering the Holy One, we become burdened over sin. Why does he feel this way? He says, because I am a man of unclean lips. Have you ever felt burdened over your sin? I get weary of battling with mine. I can't wait till the battle's over. The wisest thing to do when you feel burdened by your sin, and that's not a bad thing. I think the most dangerous thing is to be oblivious of your sin or to intentionally ignore it or sweep it under the carpet. Better to deal with it, right? So wisdom would dictate when you're in a state like this, as he is, it's wise to confess and to repent. And all repent means is just do a 180, you know, and turn the other way so that you're going in the opposite direction. 
Now, does this bear out in Scripture? There's plenty of examples. Uh, Job would be one example if you want it. It's Job 42, 5 and 6. He says, My eye sees thee. Therefore, I retract and repent in dust and ashes. And remember the scene in Luke 5, 8? But when Simon Peter saw the great quantity of fish, he fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. While encountering the Holy One, we become burdened over sin. Now, Isaiah wasn't just self-focused. He has a heart for his people in Judah as well. He's speaking to the people in Judah. And so he says, Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Was that really true? Well, in the previous chapter, in 520, it says this, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil. So in addition to his own sins, he's also burdened over the sins of his people. And this is a natural, even healthy response when we encounter the Holy One. We become burdened over sin. Ours, and in our case, the sin of our culture, right? Our society. And then he says, and here's the reason why it all occurred. For my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. So he had a life-changing encounter with the Holy One. You know, most Christians have a difficult time acknowledging sin. Nothing new here, right? Years ago, the great evangelist D.L. Moody was invited to preach at a church. And when he arrived at the church, he was given notice or warned, if you will, uh, by the leaders of the church because this, uh, there was a, a unique behavior that occurred in that church. And so the leaders alerted him that many of the people were in the habit of leaving early before the sermon was over. Maybe 10 minutes into it, 15 minutes into it, they would leave, just take up and go. And so he filed that in the back of his mind. And as he approached the pulpit, he said, This morning I'm going to speak to two classes of people. The first group I'm going to speak to uh, are sinners. And the second group I'm going to speak to are those who do not sin. And then he began to preach away as he did back in those days with no microphone, just belting it out. He was a very gifted man, didn't have a lot of education, but he was yielded to the Spirit of God. And uh, when he finished addressing the sinners, the first group, he said, okay, sinners, you can leave now. And nobody got up. I wonder why. Well, it could be, obviously, you know, a little bit of public embarrassment, so they didn't want to get up. Or maybe they thought comparatively that their sin wasn't so bad. Have you ever been there? Well, yeah, I'll admit I do this, this. But did you see that guy? Look, what he, this guy's selling drugs, and Right? There's not that sliding scale with God. Sin is sin. And it's a package deal, by the way. You blow it in one area, the whole thing blows up. Well, that's not fair. I only did one sin. Yeah, but it's a package deal. It blew up. We're all guilty. I'm guilty. You're guilty. Isaiah is guilty. His people are guilty. And so, do we have a difficult time acknowledging sin? What's the remedy? Well, encounter with the Holy One, obviously. But when we pray, isn't that an encounter with Him? And after all, who am I speaking to when I pray? I'm speaking to the Holy One, right? The old formula still works. I'm not saying you have to do it this way. But you think about, you know, the old Acts formula, A-C-T-S, adoration, good place to start, just adoring Him. And then the C, don't skip that one. 
confession. He already knows anyway. And then thanksgiving. And then finally the shopping list. That's the S, shopping list. Supplication. Lord, here's what I need. Usually we go with the shopping list and amen, over and out, we're done, right? Acts, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Good place to start. But in addition to confessing our sins to the Holy One, James 5.16 says what? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Notice how he couples together confession and prayer. They do go together. And so the idea really behind that verse is, it doesn't mean, by the way, you know, indiscriminately spill out your secrets to the entire world. Put everything on Facebook you can think of and just get it out there, right? Because everybody wants to know. That's not what he's talking about here. But confess your sins to someone you trust for the purpose, this is it, of reciprocal prayer. We need prayer, my friends. I need prayer. Best thing you could ever do for me is pray for me. The best thing I can ever do for you is pray for you. But how can I pray intelligently for you unless you confess? So here's how that works. Find somebody you really trust who's mature, who's a prayer warrior, and have some kind of accountability relationship with them. That's one of the wonderful tools that the Lord has given us that we need to take advantage of. Think about it. Why should someone who is comfortable with sin then be sent out by God to make somebody else uncomfortable with sin? The point here is simply this. While encountering the Holy One, we become burdened over sin. What's the big point of the whole text? In my mind, it looks to me like encountering the Holy One is life-changing. All right, in what ways? Well, when we encounter the Holy One, we become burdened over sin. But there's a second way in which we change. And that is, while encountering the Holy One, we become burdened for service. While encountering the Holy One, we become burdened for service. Now look at verse 6, and notice what happens here. Still in Isaiah 6, chapter 6, in this case, verse 6 now. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Now, he took it with tongs because it's holy, not because it's hot. He's already a burning one. If anything, he's going to burn that coal more. It's not going to burn his hand. But he's using the tongs because this is something sacred. And he's going to put it on something dirty here in just a second. He takes it from the altar of incense, which is sometimes used as atonement for sin. But there's also a sacrificial altar. There may have been an animal sacrifice during this worship service. We don't know. It's a vision, right? And he says in verse 7, He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Now, remember in verse 5, Isaiah confessed, I am a man of unclean lips. Here the Holy One meets him right at the point of his need. And that's what he does for us. This is how gracious this holy God is. You confess a need, he will meet you right there at the point of your need, whatever it is. Yeah, but I've got a besetting sin. I can't break this particular... He can handle that. Confess it to him. He wants to meet you at the point of your need. The last thing you want to do is hide it and cover it up and keep it quiet. So he comes in grace. Notice that this messenger, if you want to call him that, this seraph, takes the initiative here. And then he says, your sin is 
forgiven. (laughs) Isaiah was convinced that he was about to die. He's a sinner. He knows it. God knows it. The seraphim know it. And still God takes the initiative as he sends his little messenger here, the seraph, to purify this man and forgive his sins and cancel the liability. That is divine grace. And I'm telling you, I don't know any better motivator for service than divine grace. Can you think of anything? I mean, you can try guilt. You can try all kinds of stuff. But when you experience the divine grace of this awesome God, you just naturally want to serve him. Lord, what else can I do for you? And that's going to happen here to Isaiah. Notice, look at verse 8. It's a fascinating verse here. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Look at the question there. Who will go for us? This allows room for the doctrine of the Trinity, I believe. I believe that three persons of the Trinity are in council together here. And they're asking a question which is more rhetorical than directed at Isaiah. I don't think Isaiah is being coerced. I'm not even sure he's being addressed directly. This is the triune God uh, posing a question. But nevertheless, overwhelmed by divine grace, Isaiah volunteers to serve the Holy One. Lord, Lord, here I am. Send me, Lord, I'll go. If it's in the temple, he could be looking around. There's priests, nobody else volunteering, right? He doesn't even think twice. He volunteers right away. He's overwhelmed by the divine grace of God. Now, what I love about this is Isaiah volunteers immediately before he even receives a job description. Most of us want to see what the duties are first. Well, how many hours is this going to be? Do I have to sharpen pencils? What, what, else, what else do I got to do? No, he doesn't even know what he's signing up for yet. He just wants to serve the Lord. That's a natural and a healthy, spiritually healthy response. While encountering the Holy One, we become burdened for service. And so what does the Lord say? Nothing doing. I don't need you. I got somebody else. Is God looking primarily for ability or for availability? I think he loves availability. And I've been a pastor for a lot of years, and I always thought, I can, I can train anybody, but I want those who have a willing heart who are serving for the right reasons. I don't need talented hotshots that are doing their own thing. The Lord loves those who say, here I am, Lord, whatever talent you gave me, it's yours. Whatever you want me to do, east, west, north, south, I'll go. You call it, I'll do it, because you're worth it. Because you saved me from self-destruction, i.e. sin. And this man here is overwhelmed. He's got the glow of the holiness of God in his eyes, and his heart is overflowing with his grace. And so the Lord says, verse 9, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Now, because his sin was forgiven and he was burdened for service, Isaiah receives a commission for the Holy One. He's now ready to serve. Sin's not a hindrance. It doesn't mean he's never going to be a sinner. But he's been transformed. He's been purified. So what was he commissioned to say? There's a really interesting uh, message he's giving to the people. Keep on listening. Sounds good so far. But do not perceive. What? I thought we want people to understand. 
Now, you see, the problem is most of the people in Judah were entrenched in sin. In the previous chapter, chapter 5, verse 24, it says, For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And I think one scholar nails it. He says, Pride and rebellion has gone so deeply that they will simply misperceive the truth they hear. This is sort of an incapacity. Is God being unfair here? We'll talk about that in a moment. But I'm addressing a condition, a spiritual lethargy, a spiritual deadness, a spiritual unresponsiveness. That should scare the daylights out of any of us. It's not just unique to his generation. Even in Paul's day, Paul said, 2 Timothy 3, 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge, or the word could be translated, recognition of the truth. They're just dull in their hearing and their understanding. They're in a spiritual stupor. It's a terrible place to be. So in verse 10, he says, here's what I want you to keep telling them. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Now, these words of the pre-incarnate Christ sitting on the throne are then repeated by the incarnate Christ when he was on earth, New Testament days. Matthew thirteen fifteen says this, speaking of the multitudes around Jesus as he spoke, he said, And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes. A little bit of a twist there. So now we're getting below the surface here. These people have closed their eyes. Because of their willful blindness, Jesus spoke in parables to confirm them in their unbelief. Yes, willful, willful unbelief is a punishable offense. Everybody has, most people have two sets of operating ears, right? And so everybody's hearing this message, or most are. Some choose to hear it. Some choose not to hear it. You know how that goes, right? Try that with children sometimes. They're watching TV. You say, could you go pick up your toys? And they don't hear that. Kids, free candy. Huh? What? What? I thought they weren't listening. Oh, they were listening. I do this in my classrooms once in a while just to make sure they're with me, right? Not with candy, but... And so that's what we have here. This is a choice they're making. That's what you need to see. Now, if you go over to Acts 28, keep your place in Isaiah, though, because Paul experienced the same thing at the last chapter of Acts, all the way over to Acts 28. And this particular scene occurs when Paul is under house arrest. And uh, you can actually go see the place we think, scholars believe, is the place where Paul was under house arrest in Rome, uh, down below this one particular church. At least that's where we think it is. Acts 28, Paul here invites, uh, he's kind of new to Rome. He invites uh, some Jewish leaders to his quarters where he's at, and he wants to explain himself and also share the gospel with them. And uh, they don't all receive it, right? So look at verse 25, Acts 28, verse 25. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. Now listen to what he says here. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, and now he's quoting Isaiah 6, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. 
and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive, for the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. So, verse 28, let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will also listen. And so Isaiah gave a message that was intended for Judah, but that message then is refulfilled, if you will, in Jesus' day. It's refulfilled in Paul's presence right here in Acts 28. And I think this dynamic still applies today. One scholar puts it like this. In each generation, down through the centuries, people exist who hear God's truth and reject it. When they do, they fulfill Isaiah's words again. But others hear it, accept it, and thus receive more. And praise the Lord for that. So whether people reject our message or receive our message, in both cases, we are to serve the Lord faithfully. The rest is God's business. He converts people. I'll witness, but he does the converting. I don't. And if they don't respond, I'm still going to pray, and I'm still going to do my best to try. But on the other hand, God knows what he's doing here. Some of this is a mystery. But the point being, in this particular case, the people were under judgment. It's a serious matter. But they have heard it and heard it and heard it. They had religiosity, but they were insensitive and dull, and they just did not receive the Lord, and they didn't experience this encounter in the way that Isaiah did. And so, my friends, keep sharing the word. Leave the results with the Lord. I know it's tough. You'd like to see people who've got family members and friends, you'd like to see them converted now. Who wouldn't? But be faithful. And maybe it's a matter of time. Keep watering, keep sowing, and allow the Lord to do what he wants to do. It's his timing. It's not ours. He converts. We don't. We need to be faithful. And so, when it comes to service, do you serve willingly? Are you willing to say, yes, Lord, and then get the job description later? Are you willing to get the job description first, even, and say, yes, Lord? What is my motivation for service? What is yours? Hopefully not guilt. Hopefully not because somebody pressured us, but hopefully just overwhelming gratitude for what this gracious God has done for us. This man's life was changed, and encountering the Holy One is life-changing in at least three ways. When we encounter the Holy One, we become burdened over sin, and we become burdened for service. But there's a third way in which our life is changed, and that is, while encountering the Holy One, we become burdened for souls. While encountering the Holy One, we become burdened for souls. And notice what happens in verse 11. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people. In other words, he's asking, how long will the blindness of my people continue? You see, he had an overwhelming burden for his people. His heart was broken for their spiritual condition. 
In fact, this is not only a lament, but it's an indirect appeal for mercy. Lord, have mercy on my people. And so the Lord does answer his lament. He says, here's how long, Isaiah, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Now, after Isaiah died, Babylon invaded Judah and devastated its cities, including the capital, Jerusalem, and the temple as well. And that's what he's referring to. So, in effect, Isaiah was sent to preach to people who were willfully blind for the rest of his life. Kind of a thankless assignment from a human perspective. But that's not what it's about. It's not so much about success or fruit, although that's great, but it's about faithfulness. Lord, you have a plan. I don't fully get it, but you said preach. I will preach. I pray you'll turn these people around, but if you don't, you have a purpose that's going to glorify you anyway. And yet, there's more to say. Now look at verse 12. The Lord has removed men far away, meaning until he does, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Now this prophecy of Judah's exile into Babylon, they were there for 70 years, is so certain that notice it's phrased in past tense, as though it already occurred. It's going to happen after Isaiah dies, uh, during the days of Jeremiah. Even before Isaiah was on the scene, going way, way back now in Deuteronomy, days of Moses, Deuteronomy twenty-eight sixty-three. before Isaiah, here's what the Lord says. Speaking to the nation, you shall be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. And then after Isaiah, in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah 13, 14, Behold, I am going to uproot them from their land and will uproot the house of Judah from among them. This prophecy must have burdened Isaiah even more. Lord, I'm asking you to have mercy on these people. And he's saying, in this case, they're going to dig in and be stubborn. And so there's not going to be a lot of fruit Now, the question is, was Isaiah left without any hope? I mean, this is pretty gloomy. I'm looking for some hope here. He makes this appeal for mercy, and God does answer Isaiah's appeal for mercy. If you look at verse 13, notice how it's worded there. Yet, there will be a tenth portion in it. And it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Have you ever seen a tree stump that's cut down? I used to have two giant ones in my yard. I had these big, uh, what do they call those, the trees that snow with the cottonwoods. I used to go in my neighbor's swimming pool and I felt so bad about it. I spent big bucks to get these things chopped down. Well, here I'm cutting the grass and all of a sudden shoots are coming. I'm thinking, here we go again. Of course, I'll be dead by the time these things get big, right? But uh, tree stumps, vegetation has a way of rejuvenating itself. And this is a hopeful message. Notice, the holy seed is its stump. What's he saying? There will be a remnant, always. Now, for Isaiah, a man whose name means the Lord is salvation, this is awesome news. It must have been very encouraging. Now, remember earlier the seraphim said this, holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But now the Holy One describes this remnant as a holy seed. You see that there? What a privilege. This is due only to the divine grace of God. 
In every generation, there exists a faithful remnant. I don't care where it is. You say, well, nobody believes in this culture. Well, there's always a handful that God has. Throughout history, check it out. There's always at least a handful, if not more. Are you a part of the remnant? Some of you are going to say, yeah, amen, I am. Others are saying, I'm not really sure. For those who are not sure, you can be sure before you leave today. In John 1.12, it says, But as many as received him, the Lord Jesus, to them, the ones who received him, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Who are these people? Even those who believe in his name. Those who receive, believe on the Lord Jesus, become children of God. They don't pay him. They don't earn it. They don't work for it. It's a gracious gift. Isaiah is sitting there about to die, he thought, and he gets a gracious gift as the Lord meets him in his need and changes his life. You can be part of the remnant by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior at this very instant. Embrace him by faith. He loves you. He wants to give you eternal life. Now, notice carefully what happens uh, in this particular text. We see a man who comes in in a desperate time in history, goes into worship, is confronted by a holy God, sees himself for who he really is, gets an x-ray vision of his own soul, you might say, and responds in the proper way. That is, he acknowledges what really is true, and he embraces the life preserver that God throws out to him, and his life is transformed. And he's pleasing to God for the rest of his life. He receives a call and he responds. We're saying here that encountering the Holy One is life-changing in at least three ways. One is we receive a burden over sin. The other is we become burdened for service. And the third way is we become burdened for souls to see people come to faith in Jesus. Way back about 100 years ago when I was a freshman at uh, the Moody Bible Institute, I just started, I might have been there about a month. In fact, one day after I was feeding D.L. Moody's horse, we had a student chapel, so I walked over to the chapel. This was led by students. It's a very powerful chapel. It's one of those you had to be there. I can't describe it. All I can say is God just showed up. It was awesome. It really impacted me. I remember it vividly to this day. Well, as I'm sitting in this student-led chapel, I noticed uh, the fellow next to me, and I didn't really know him. Again, I was new uh, at, this, at this time. I was there maybe a month, i say, something like that. But anyway, this fellow was deep in prayer during the entire service. And there was a time during the service, a confession time. We were encouraged to spend some time quietly confessing our sins to God. But this fellow was just weeping as though he was burdened over sin. Finally, when the service concluded, we had to walk back. This was kind of adjacent to the campus, kind of a building far away. I don't even know if the building's still there anymore. Uh, But we're walking back, and he was kind of walking abreast with me. And I noticed that he was weeping uncontrollably, just sobbing. His whole body was shaking. And so I went up to him. I was concerned. I said, "Are, are you okay? Can I help you in any way? And he said, I'm burdened for China. I'm burdened for my people in China. And I said, oh, are you from China? He said, no, I've never been there. But I'm heartsick for my people in China. And then he went on to explain he's a missions major, and he was training up to reach and serve the people of China. The Lord put a burden on him for that particular people group. Well, what we've seen here in Isaiah 6 is the pre-incarnate Christ telling Isaiah 
go and tell these people. And what did Isaiah do? Yes, Lord, here I am. I will obey. Now, we won't take time, but if we turn to Matthew 28, we're going to see there the incarnate Christ saying in Matthew 28, go, therefore, to the church, go, therefore, and make disciples. Are we going to say, yes, Lord, here I am. Send me. I will go. Will we obey? So the question is, if encountering the Holy One is life-changing, in what particular and concrete ways has he changed my life and your life? Let's pray. Holy are you, Lord. You are awesome. Vocabulary breaks down trying to describe you. And yet, Lord, you can read our hearts. We do love you. We pray, dear God, in the days ahead that you would stir us and give us a fresh vision of your awesome character and who you are and what your priorities are. And then fill our hearts with joy and an eagerness, even an excitement, exhilaration to serve you, the most excellent one. You alone are worthy. And the days ahead, may there be much fruit in the lives of others, in the lives of this church, and yes, even in our own lives. All for your glory. We pray it in the matchless name of Jesus and Lord, all your people said, amen. Praise the Lord.